Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. My guest today is Sarah Margon, the Washington Director of Human Rights Watch. Sarah is someone I've known professionally for many years and whose expertise I've relied on, particularly on human rights abuses in Africa. So it was an absolute pleasure to get to know her more through this interview and learn how she got into this line of work. Uh, We kick off with a discussion about her most recent trip to Iraqi Kurdistan, in which she investigated human rights abuses committed by groups aligned with the Iraqi government during the fight against ISIS. This is a great episode. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I post one of these longer interviews with foreign policy thought leaders every Monday. And if you have a recommendation for someone I should interview, please hit me up. Uh, You can reach me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or by email via globaldispatchespodcast.com. So here she is, Sarah Margon of Human Rights Watch. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So one of the benefits of being the Washington director, you know, or being a policy person at Human Rights Watch is that you're really encouraged to get out to the field with the researchers. Um, And I had tried to get to a number of countries uh, since I started here, but for various reasons, hadn't been able to visa um, rejections or denials, etc., and finally, after some planning, was able to get out to Iraq and, and thought, given the U.S. government focus on the country again, that it was probably good to get out and see what was going on for myself. And so I was out there for about a week in northern Iraq, around Erbil, north of Erbil, and then actually down and around Kirkuk. Um, I guess it was October. And it was an incredible trip for a number of reasons. One is that I actually have you know, field experience myself, and so to be back out in the field again after a number of years um, talking to the people who are literally on the front lines of these conflicts, not fighting but suffering, was it was a good reminder of why I'm doing the work I'm doing every day. It was really reinvigorating to be out there with them, and it made me uh, get back to Washington and understand more acutely why I was encouraging the administration to pick up person uh, specific policies, which was which was useful because often Human Rights Watch doesn't pick up the line that the administration wants to hear. So I guess in a sense you could say it, it, it added some passion. Um, and I, I understood much better what is a very complicated situation. And I don't have all the answers. I don't speak Arabic. I understand the crisis on the ground far less than our, my researcher uh, who was there and is there on a regular basis. But to have that time to be traveling sort of under the radar with a translator, and that's it, not with a large delegation or man, to go to places that not a lot of Americans are are going to on a regular basis. Can you actually describe, like, how does that work? A human rights watch researcher goes to Kurdistan. How do you um, go about doing your interviews? Like, how how do you fly under the radar like that? 
So it's a lot of logistical work, um, and our researchers really do this, and they develop the contacts and the relationships with people. Some of it is with journalists, both international and local. Some of it is with community-based organizations, uh, civil society that works there, academics. And over a period of time, we develop relationships with these individuals. And, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, they're handed off from researcher to researcher so that the, the contacts aren't lost. Um, but every researcher obviously develops their new contacts. So we have a, a fixer um, that we work with and usually travel in one small car. It's not an armored car. It's not a truck. It doesn't have a flag on it. Um, and we try to pick up as many local customs as we can in an appropriate way, of course, so that we're respectful um, and adhere to sort of the laws and regulations, of course. We have security conversations before we go into every single situation, many of which are complex situations, to make sure um, that our security advisor and our program director feels comfortable with everything. And so is your um, goal to just speak to as many people on the front lines as possible, to like collect as many stories as possible? It depends on what we're researching, right? So the researchers have a very specific focus. They'll get a tip or some information, and then they'll start to, to, to track it and to get evidence and to get analysis and to basically to recreate uh, the situation with as much information and details as they can. And we do that any number of ways. In countries where we can go to, we do it by sitting with the, with, uh, the victims or the witnesses or their families. Um, and talking to sometimes it's also with security force officials uh, who are willing to talk uh, if security forces are implicated or in some cases if security forces did the right thing and were protecting people. Um, in the case of Iraq, for example, we spent some time with the Peshmerga field commanders because what we were looking at was Shia militia abuses in the aftermath of um, the Amerly uh, airstrikes this can, past August. Can you describe that, the, the situation, the Amerly airstrikes and, and that situation for people who yeah. aren't as familiar? Yeah, sure. So Amerly was a, uh, um, a small town uh, that was under siege by ISIS, and uh, it's a Shia town. And so um, while the U.S. had been trying to dislodge ISIS from the air, on the ground, the Peshmerga and the Shia uh, militia had been, um, excuse me, had been um, working sort of to dislodge ISIS on the ground. And so um, it was considered a success and a successful collaboration when, in fact, ISIS was dislodged or defeated and moved on. The story that we've been looking at in the aftermath of this, and I've written a little bit about this as has, has my research, as our researchers, is that while Amerly was a Shia town, what surrounded it were a number of um, Sunni villages. And so in the aftermath of what was seen as a very successful liberation of this town, uh, a number of different Shia militias absolutely ransacked the Sunni villages, um, many of them that were around that town and displaced thousands and thousands of Sunnis. Uh, they were incredibly brutal. Um, they lit fire to and destroyed civilian homes. And so what you're looking at and what our forthcoming report will talk about in great detail is this dynamic that has been set up where ISIS goes in under the name of supporting um, and liberating Sunnis and then the Shia militia come in to quote-unquote fight ISIS and end up uh, wreaking havoc and in many cases displacing or killing Sunni civilians simply because they're Sunni. And, and so these Shia militia are more or less aligned with the Iraqi government, right? Which itself is more or less aligned with the United States. 
I would say they are are more than just aligned. I would say the militia have infiltrated the security forces, which all but melted away uh, last summer when ISIS um, gained so much ground. And um, they are, in some cases, in many cases, leading the fight on the ground uh, as part of the security forces or in tandem with the official security forces. And the minister, the new minister of the interior, is um, head of uh, one of these militias. So yes, very closely linked. Uh, and I guess what is how's the U.S. role in this? I mean, the U.S. is presumably backing the Iraqi government, which you say are sort of you know kind of been infiltrated by militias, and the U.S. government also is supporting the Peshmerga. Uh, so does the U.S. have any responsibility or culpability in some of these massacres of Sunnis that you're that you, that you sort of describing? You know, this is what we've been looking at. This is the uphill battle that I've been, um, at at the very least, trying to educate um, U.S. government officials about and make sure that they're aware of just how severe the situation is. Because it's not only that the U.S. Provi- is providing support, both in terms of training, advising, and equipment, and has been for many years to the Iraqi security forces, but we saw a lot of evidence that a lot of the equipment that the U.S. has provided to the government has just basically been siphoned off or maybe even given to these militias. So that's a violation of a whole bunch of U.S. laws. Um, and there hasn't been a lot of recognition publicly that, uh, that the Shia militia are posing a very serious threat and making the sectarian problems in Iraq worse. There, as I understand it, have been private conversations about it. But the problem is, unless it's acknowledged and addressed up front at the same time that you're fighting ISIS, it's going to cause a lot of problems down the line. Now, you investigated this one incident. Um, Like, do you know if there are others or what the scale of of, uh, Shia abuses against Sunni civilian populations in the name of fighting ISIS uh, yeah. Like what's what's the scale of that? It's 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 pretty widespread. I mean, it's not just uh, Sunnis that the Shia militia go after. You know, to be clear, but that tends to be sort of the main focus. You know, there was actually a New York Times report a couple of days ago, maybe last week, about a massacre in Diyala province. So you're starting to see even in the last four or five months since I was there, a lot more media about this and. I mean, to be honest, this is not new. This has been happening for a long, long time, right? 2000, the invasion of 2003 enabled so many um, militia groups to be created and to, to run rampant with impunity. And it's gotten worse in recent, and many of these militias have been emboldened um, by the need to fight against ISIS. There has been a call to join militias um, by many of the leaders of them. So it's quite widespread. It's quite problematic. Um, you know, Anbar province is a region that we can't access. It's just too dangerous right now. Um, but we understand that the militias are leading the fight there, and it's been incredibly aggressive and incredibly brutal because people who are living in Anbar don't really have access to electricity and water on a regular basis. So they're already suffering uh, without their basic um, services, and now they're not only getting um, airstrikes by the Iraqi security forces from the, from the air, of course, but also attacked on the ground. Um, is there like a, a readily available solution? Like in your, I know in Human Rights Watch reports, you usually issue like recommendations. Um, yeah. What's like your recommendation to the U.S. government on, on this, just to, to, to be more cognizant of what your partners are doing? Yeah, I mean, you know, at the risk of using 
um, a horrible um, overused phrase. There's no silver bullet for this one. But the start is certainly to make sure that uh, it's talked about publicly and that the administration is making sure that the Iraqi government is dealing with it. Um, there's been some initial cosmetic steps that I certainly hope will trickle down and have an impact uh, on the ground. It's not just about forming an inclusive government per se in Baghdad. It's also about making sure you create an integrated security force that protects the population, doesn't prey on it, which is what's happening now. And there needs to be steps to address accountability and impunity over the long term. But, you know, <laughs> a very, some initial measures that could be taken would be for Prime Minister Abadi to make sure that all equipment, Iraqi security force equipment, is not falling into the hands of the militias to make sure that there is no, there are no attacks against civilians or non-military targets, um, to send those guidelines down to the battlefields, to make sure that everybody who is fighting on, in the name of the Iraqi government is wearing uniforms and is clearly um, under, understands battlefield guidelines and laws. Those are some very initial tangible measures that could, could make a difference uh, in the near term. And then some of those other issues that would require greater, greater institutional reform obviously have to be implemented sort of more slowly um, as the security sector gets reformed. Um, so uh, if we can switch gears now. Um, so I was trying to think of the first time we met. It must have been in like the early 2000s when I was kind of writing on issues related to the UN and human rights and you were an expert uh, in these fields. But I realized that I have really no idea like where your expertise comes from and or really like where you come from, what your background is. So I thought it'd be a good opportunity to to talk to you uh, about that. Um, so I, I guess, where are you from? Like, where, where were you born? That's it. Um, I'll, I'll just kick off with the most basic question and see where that takes us. I, I'm so happy the gears have switched. Uh, it, it's nice to have both sides of, the, uh, of, of questions like this. Um, it may not surprise you that I'm a, a native of Brooklyn, New York. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, an actual native. Up, Most people yes, I know have native. moved there from the tri-state area, but you're fr fr born and raised? Not born. Born in Manhattan, and then, as I like to joke, rushed home over the bridge. Ah, okay. um, but yes, completely raised uh, in Brooklyn with an immense amount of, of, of Brooklyn pride. I, you know, when I lived in Brooklyn, growing up, it was not cool. Nobody wanted to go there. And lots of people say, oh, you're from Brooklyn. Do you have a gun? And I sort of looked at them like, they're crazy. And I was like, what are you talking about? Uh, I often, I, my friends used to joke that I was going to lead a campaign, a one-woman campaign to make Brooklyn an independent nation. Okay. <laughs> a, Brooklyn, <laughs> a, a Brooklyn independence movement. I, I figure we're probably about the same age, right? You're probably in like the late 70s, early 80s born. A little, little, little older than that. Little older, <laughs> little older than me? Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> a little older. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, what were your parents doing? Oh, God. Back... Back at that point, my, my father was a professor uh, at Brooklyn College. He was a historian of American history. And um, I think my mother was running a medical education program at Downstate College. Um, and they bought this little house uh, in the early 70s in Brooklyn. And everybody thought they were crazy for moving to Brooklyn. And then I came along, and little by little, you know, more of their peers started moving out to Brooklyn from Queens or Manhattan and suddenly had this, like, little, not really hippie, they like to think of it as hippie, but sort of semi-hippie community that they were part of. 
Um, and so I, I guess in this semi-hippie community, um, what were what was your exposure to issues of human rights or, or international affairs? You know, as I try to think back about sort of how I ended up on this path, I try to think, you know, the early years, what was it? And I keep running up against a couple of things, although I would say my formative experiences and sort of what really drove me to be where I am now um, was not until much, much later in life. It wasn't like I, you know, dreamed of working in foreign affairs when I was five years old and, you know, set, set down that path from the beginning. But I think maybe in the early years, my most influential um, sort of opening to the world, my parents loved to travel and we traveled a lot when I was young. Uh, so I always sort of knew about other communities and that other countries existed and that in and of itself was interesting to me. Um, my, one of my father's good friends from graduate school was actually a man from Sierra Leone and they were very close. So I called him my uncle and uncle Gus, um, was a, was a minister in the foreign ministry, I guess, in Freetown in, excuse me, maybe the eighties. Um, and he would come, you know, to Unga every year actually. And he would always come to see us and, and spend time with us and bring my parents these crazy gifts, um, you know, ivory tusks and things that now I sort of suggest they don't put out on their mantle. And, um, he was a big part of our life and I knew that he had a family back in Freetown and, uh, I was, he always would say, when you are graduated from high school, you will come to Freetown and you will work for me in the ministry and live with my family and you'll have this experience with your uncle Gus. And I thought, how great. And when I graduated from high school, um, well, even before we graduated from high school, um, Sierra Leone erupted into conflict. And so there was, we didn't see Gus anymore. And, um, there was no way I was going to Sierra Leone, obviously, but it always stuck with me. And in the end, his family got airlifted out of Freetown, and actually he now lives in London and um, as a refugee. And um, it, it was a pretty formative young story for a young person to sort of know, you know, that this had happened and that he had been such a presence in my life and then had disappeared because he literally couldn't get there anymore. Um, and... Um, when I went off to college, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut. That's also and, sufficiently you know, like all, hippie, I think. <laughs> sufficiently hippie and progressive, but I was sort of all over the map. And I started getting really into American uh, history and American studies, and I guess following in my father's footsteps a bit and became really interested in race relations and poverty issues and cultural issues in the United States. And for a long time thought that I was going to pursue that path and sort of try to deal with a lot of the issues that we face, in fact, that we seem to be facing, you know, more now than ever um, on, the, on the domestic landscape. And when time for graduation came, I suddenly got terrified of, of working. <laughs> I just, I wasn't ready to have a job and I didn't like the idea of being in an office or, and I couldn't figure out what to do. So a friend and I decided that we were just going to do something kind of, you know, crazy. And we moved to Eastern Europe and it was a couple what, about of years. What year was this? So this was uh, 90, 98. Okay. So it was less than 10 years after the wall had fallen, and we moved to Budapest, or Budapest, I should say. And it, was, it had sort of democratized at that point enough so that it felt somewhat like, a, like you could understand the country and you could see where it was going to go. You could see its trajectory forward, both in terms of simple things like commercial, restaurants, um, you know, music, um, this interest in, in engaging with the West, but yet it still had this fundamental core of being very formerly Soviet. And 
it was a, it was sort of a wild place and a wild time to be there. And I also was there. Uh, I stayed through the, the Kosovo conflict, so Hungary joined NATO, and then Kosovo the conflict happened. And so I was suddenly aware of a lot of the issues that I had studied um, in college on a very real level, cultural issues and sort of communities that were experiencing you know repression and and things that they you know social basically social change and social injustice. I guess is the best way to put it. Um, and it was really eye-opening. And how how long did you spend in Hungary? Uh, well, to be totally truthful, it was a pretty difficult and miserable year because it was just really cold. <laughs> and uh, although I learned a lot and actually loved the country, but it was a really difficult year. And I only stayed a year. And then I came back and decided I was ready to have a job. I sort of had my adventure. I had worked with Kosovo refugees and a whole bunch of other refugees that, <clears throat> excuse me, had found their way to eastern eastern Hungary, which was you know, included people from West Africa and Afghanistan. It was kind of incredible. And I came back and I ended up um, getting a job at the Soros Foundation in New York. And that basically is what, you know, that sort of final experience just propelled me on, you know, that I like to think of that as the early days of, yeah, of the I mean, Soros being, being Hungarian, of course, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the fact, you know, at that point it was OSI and OSI was still pretty Small. That's the Open Society um, Institute for people who aren't right. down with the lingo. Right. Sorry. It was Open Society Institute. It was pretty small. And I think the fact that I had lived in Hungary for a year was, you know, that was interesting to them. And they were um, focused on that, that at that point, right? Like OSI was very much focused on yeah. the, dem yeah. the democratic transition in Eastern Europe. That was like the main yes. source's main focus oh, yes. for many years, right? Yeah, they actually the scope of their work was a lot smaller at that point, and so it's not every American <laughs> or every New Yorker that sh puts on their resume. I just spent a year in Hungary. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so what? You know, yeah, so it ended up being like a great a great next step. Um, and so at OSI, what kind of work were you thrust into? I was doing a whole bunch of different things. I was doing communication, a lot of communications work, actually. I was an assistant, so I was also doing, you know, people's expenses, things like that, which apparently I was pretty terrible at, uh, breaking copier machines, the usual. Um, I did get a chance as things started to melt down and fall apart in uh, former Yugoslavia to do some work on Serbia and to meet with and support some of the opposition there, which was the uproar, the youth opposition, which was pretty exciting. What, what was your work with them like? Cause that, I mean, that was, that's a pretty, that group, the up, up for is, is so I think impressive. Um, will you just, I guess maybe describe for people who aren't aware of, of what that is and like how they were able to topple Milosevic, just kind of tell that story. Yeah, I mean, you know, to be totally honest with you, I don't even remember all the details of what my support was. It was, it was a little bit of a blur, um, you know, but they were an incredibly young and dynamic uh, student group who had been able to sort of the early days of social media and organizing and had been able to, to, to gather together to push information out on, if I'm not mistaken, it was an early blog. Um, and that was actually one of my roles was to help them translate, even though I didn't speak any appropriate languages, but to help fix the English language um, that they were writing so that the rest of the world could see what they were doing, and basically to get information from the ground and share it with others. Um, and they were able to create links throughout communities within <coughs> Serbia and across different ethnic lines as well, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it was, it was incredible. They were so young. I mean, they couldn't have been much older than me. And I, I flew to Budapest at that point, and they... Um, a number of sort of the core blogging team had moved up to Budapest for their own safety. And we were working there, I don't know, 15, 20 hours a day. And I 
if I recall correctly, it started with a vodka and it ended with a vodka. I remember, and, and this it, group now, I mean, they're like, uh, you know, back in like 2000, they, you know, employed really novel techniques to topple a dictator, someone that like everyone around the world despised. Uh, but it was a group of like um, upstart young activists yeah, uh, from the actual yeah. country that were able to do it. And I think they've been like advising uh, groups around the world in the Arab Spring in particular on how to. Um, you know, how to effectively use media, how to affect, you know, yeah. employ these, you know, various tactics to topple a dictator. Yeah. I mean, it's been, it, it was a really, it was, it was a really incredible experience and they were a bunch of very, um, very intense young men who, who were so dedicated and so passionate. It was just, it was amazing to watch you know, how how they could pour their passion into blogging. And it was the beginning of that, really. You know, it wasn't, email was still, it wasn't like what it is today. We didn't have devices that we walked around with. I don't even think I had a cell phone. Um, or if I did, you know, I didn't, Not. I mean, certainly not everybody had a cell phone. It's a very different time period. And in a sense, it's hard to understand now, given the predominance of blogs and Twitter and all of that, how how incredible disseminating information like that could be. Um, so how do you get into uh, Africa issues? I mean, I know you mostly uh, for your research and your work on, on human rights issues in Africa. Where did that come from? Uh, you know, I have to believe that it came from the early experiences um, working with my uncle and just a feeling my godmother always jokes that everybody's body clock and sort of cultural understanding is aligned to a certain place in the world. It could be your own community. It could be another one. And she always used to joke that for whatever reason, you know, mine was uh, stereotypically aligned um, to sub-Saharan Africa. Who knows if it's true? Um, but, you know... When was your to, first trip, I, your first visit to sub-Saharan Africa? Oh, my, oh my God. <laughs> I started working for Oxfam after grad school, and my first trip to, to sub-Saharan Africa, actually, it, you know, it, it was 2004, 2000, I think it was 2004, 2005, and it was to Sudan. And so I flew to Khartoum with this sort of terrible fear of the genocide that was happening. And I was like, oh, my God, it's not just that I'm finally going to Africa, so I'm going to Khartoum. And if you fly to Khartoum, you go at the worst time. Basically, you know, the flight has to be convenient for every other city and country in the world. So you get in in the middle of the night. You get in and you leave the airport in the middle of the night. And... I was supposed to be picked up by the Oxfam driver, but I guess there had been a miscommunication, and there was nobody to pick me up. And there I am in Khartoum with no working phone. Like, oh, what, what, what am I going to do? And luckily I met these nice women who worked for another aid organization, and they piled me into their van. And, and luckily I had the hotel name, and they dropped me off at the hotel that I was supposed to stay at. And, of course, I show up, and... There's nobody, um, it must be like 4 o'clock in the morning, and there's some men who are smoking, and that's it. And they take me up to my room, and that was my first experience. And it ended up being a wonderful trip, and I met up with my Oxfam contacts, and we, we did everything we're supposed to do, went out to Darfur, and, and sort of did our site visits and everything. But Wait, it was so you, such... you were able, in your very first trip to Sub-Saharan Africa, you went to Darfur? Yes. <laughs> What was, I, I mean, I got, so you, I mean, I got stuck in Darfur too. <laughs> so I, I, you know, this is 2004 though. This is pretty much the, the height of the genocide, right? I mean, yeah, what... it, it might've been 2005. We, we were in El Fasher and sort of going to some of the camps that Oxfam had been working at. And it was, you know, we, I don't know. It, it, you know, this is what humanitarian aid organizations do so well, right? They create, 
community relations so that even in the middle of the worst conflict, you can travel and you can do the things you do. You know, all of these aid groups are doing this, not without significant obstacles, but in Syria and, and in many cases in Iraq. And it was, Oxfam had a huge program in Darfur and was doing incredible life-saving work. Um, and so I went and saw a number of the camps and met with a number of the people um, that we were serving there. And then we were trying to get back to Khartoum, and our flight went in 17 different directions before going back to Khartoum. And we ended up getting – it was a U.N. flight, a World Food Program flight, and we ended up getting stuck in West Darfur because the, um, the, the wheel broke and the plane had to unload us. And then they took off because they didn't want to spend the night in West Darfur, so they took off without us. And we had to spend the night and it, in – it, we were Oxfam was closing down its compound, and there were we were like there's jonjaweed everywhere. This is not safe, but we had no choice. And um, I ended up spending the night and then getting on the next plane, and it was sort of this insane experience um, that you know now is just sort of part of my experiences. But at that point, I was like, this this is how this works. This is both amazing and crazy. Um, so how long, uh, were you with Oxfam then doing this kind of work and what, I guess, what kind of work were you doing? I was a humanitarian and conflict policy advisor in DC. Um, and I, I basically had signed on cause they said at that time, they sort of the bulk of the work, um, would be Africa focused. And that's what I had gone back to grad school to study. And, uh, and so I was there for, um, about three years and then I got pulled in to go work for Senator Feingold. Um, as his chief foreign policy advisor and also as staff director for the African Affairs Subcommittee. Um, and that, um, uh, I guess Feingold, you know, he's he's like, I think, well known among people who kind of study Africa as being, you know, someone who, um, you know, rare for the Senate actually like focuses on these issues. Yeah. Um, so what, I guess, what was he like? Like what was working for, for Feingold like? I mean, he's, it's funny because he's like mostly known for as like the good government campaign finance guy. Yeah, um, right. But his probably most, you know, now that that law has been gutted, um, his most uh, probably enduring <laughs> impact has to do with U.S. relations to Africa, I'd say. Yeah, you know, he, I think he's mostly known, you know, for um, McCain Feingold to the point where he talks about how people, at least in Wisconsin, used to ask him if his first name was McCain, um, <laughs> right? So which I thought was very funny. And then, of course, his vote on the Patriot Act, right? The, the sole vote against the Patriot Act, which happened before I got there. Uh, and then his incredible legacy on foreign policy. He served in the Senate for, I think, 17 or 18 years until his defeat in 2010. And he had been active in Africa every single year. He was either chair or ranking of the subcommittee basically the entire time he was there. And he was tenacious on these issues. And, and you know, we used to joke in the office that if Africans could vote, we'd never have could vote for Feingold. We'd never have to worry about him losing anything. Because he really believed that he was their voice in the Senate. He was their voice to the administration. Um, and he, he was a champion of the continent as a place for progress, um, despite how many crises he was dealing with. So what issues were you working on in his office? I guess uh, around what year, uh, what year was this? I joined him in 2007. Uh, and then I stayed through his defeat. And... Um, God, so I had the subcommittee and I had a team that I worked with and, you know, we focused on a whole range of African issues and we tried very much 
and this was really with his guidance, not to just be reactive to the crisis of the moment. He wanted to look long-term at democratic trends, and he wanted to look at, you know, how the U.S. could play a role um, helping address security force uh, abuses and or reform, I should say, and sort of root out some of the abuse problems. Um, he had a big portfolio on global health, um, which had started before I got there. So the subcommittee, re we really worked on all of those issues. But then there was this whole other portfolio. I mean, he was the lead Democrat trying to redeploy the U.S. troops from Iraq. And so I spent an incredible amount of time actually working on Iraq issues with him. He was deeply engaged on Afghanistan and Pakistan. And he really believes in um, government as a force of good. And I think saw part of his job both his oversight job was to correct policy that had gone awry, to translate American foreign policy to the American people, and to make sure that U.S. all U.S. tools were used, and so that when foreign policy was crafted, um, that they were thinking about sort of how do you integrate um, human rights and the rule of law into your bigger foreign policy foreign policy priorities. And that was a huge challenge. That's still a huge challenge. In fact, that's what I sort of do now every day at Human Rights Watch. Um, but he also was incredibly ahead of the curve. And, you know, we did work with, I did work with him on um, AQIM, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. And I think it was 2009, there were two huge bombs that went off in Algeria, and he did a big, I don't know, it was, it was 2007, actually, he did a huge force. Yeah, at the that. UNDP offices in, in Algeria, right. right? That was the right. second, at the time, right. if I'm trying, that was like the second biggest attack on the UN, or I think it probably had the biggest attack on the UN uh, yeah. in, in history. Yeah. And, he, and then a few years <laughs> later, the, the, um, there, was the, there was an attack in Abuja. Um, in Abuja on like, the UN headquarters. That was in 2012, right. yeah, right. the UN headquarters by the right. time, I mean, that was, that, that was bad right. stuff, yeah. So he had been watching some of the terrorist threats in North Africa, and he had been keeping his eye on um, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen. And we had been sort of pushing things out and trying to develop initiatives from our office um, to, to, to get the administration and, and others to pay attention to all of these threats. And say it's not just about Al-Qaeda core in Pakistan. And if Al-Qaeda core is in Pakistan, why, Mr. Obama, are you sending more troops to Afghanistan? Let's think about strategically whether the military might is the best way to deal with this. And now, as I look back on that, I realize, and now as everyone is looking at Boko Haram and AQIM and, you know, even Al-Shabaab and, and all of these different threats, it amazes me how ahead of the curve he was in thinking really comprehensively about, about U.S. foreign policy and, and, and not make, making sure it's not so myopic that you sort of get sucked into one tunnel and that's how you see everything. And I have to say, it... I feel so lucky to have been part of that with him, and it has really influenced my thinking and how I approach my work. I wanted to ask you um, how uh, about Congress in, in Africa. I mean, it seems um, that, you know, in general, like policy towards Africa uh, writ large does not inspire as much sort of partisan bickering or partisan like politicking even in the in the bush administration as well back in 2007 or 8 when you started uh with feingold uh, up to today there is i guess some unity um 
on these policies and some divergences as well. But I'm wondering, like, what are the sources of, of, in your opinion, of policy on Africa in Congress? I mean, who's creating the policy? To what end? I mean, does the diaspora have a point to play? Is there, are there business interests um, that are are hugely influential? I guess, what are the most influential sources of, like, pressure or policy formation on Africa? It's a good question because I think um, it, it has been in, in flux uh, you know, with Senator Feingold's departure and then Congressman Payne's uh, passing, the longtime champion yeah, Donald the Payne. Yeah, he was he was someone that everyone looked for, and it was it was oftentimes he was he was like the the head of the uh, House uh, Committee on Africa, Subcommittee on Africa for a long right. time. Right, right, and so they're sort of they're de- both the fact that they are no, were no longer on Capitol Hill. It was a changing of the guard, if you will, and so the natural tendencies to ask Senator Feingold or Congressman Payne, there was there some other people had to step into that fold, and so it's changed the dynamics entirely. There are still champions, and you're right, it's very bipartisan, um, except when issues of counterterrorism come up. Then it sort of tends to fall a little bit more along partisan lines. Um, and there, you know, obviously certain countries where that's more applicable, but it's been very bipartisan. Um, Senator Coons in the Senate had stepped in incredibly uh, smartly as a as a junior senator from Delaware and really just, I mean, knocked it out of the park in terms of his interest and his engagement. Um, up until the Senate just changed in, he had run that subcommittee, I have to say, very impressively with real knowledge and a real sort of interest and a hunger to learn what he didn't know. Um, we'll see what it looks like in the in the new Congress. Um, but I, I have high hopes for Senator Flake. Um, there are there's less of a collective or a collaborative approach um, on Africa, I think, than there had been because there's no clear leader. But increasingly, we're seeing um, an interest in looking at Africa as an opportunity for economic investment. Um, AGOA has to be reauthorized. Can you describe uh, AGOA uh, for people who don't know it? The African Growth and Opportunity Act, I think it actually has to be reauthorized this year. Um, and what it does is it gives <clears throat> excuse me, a number of African countries basically access into the U.S. market that they wouldn't otherwise have with a number of um, benchmarks and provisions and, and key issues. It's basically like a, you know, a free trade, uh, um, an initial free trade agreement. And it has some incredibly good provisions and um, how that progresses, whether other countries will be added to it, and what are some of the other provisions. I think some of the labor rights um, provisions probably need to be updated. But that's obviously going to garner a lot of interest and a lot of engagement, um, and the administration has been clear that they want it passed too. So that's that's going to be a, an important center point. Um, Can you uh, – do you – Talk uh, like a little bit about what effect AGOA has had in the African countries where you know that that are part of it. Yeah, I mean, if I'm not, I you know, to be truthful, I haven't actually worked a ton on AGOA because it was already in motion when I was in the Senate, and and it's a little bit outside the scope of my work now. Um, but it's done a couple of things. One is it's created communities within Africa, and I mean, sort of country communities that are part of. Um, that are part of this push to industrialize and build economic opportunities uh, and export them. And that's been really, really valuable for creating a middle class and creating uh, standards and, and sort of a framework for which many African countries can develop and, and attract business. That's been also a very important part of it. 
Um, and I think going forward, there's this real push for increased commercial engagement on the continent. And AGOA has a really strong opportunity to play into that so that African countries can export their goods, that they can also engage with each other, and that they can continue to build a middle class. Um, so were you with uh, Senator Feingold when he was appointed to be the like, U.S. Great Lakes envoy? Uh, no, that was after his departure from the Senate. Um, and so what was your, so when he departed the Senate, what, what did you do? I mean, I always wonder like what happens to staff <laughs> after their boss leaves? I mean, somehow people yeah. find jobs. Yeah, you do. Actually, you know, it, it was, his defeat was really, you know, was pretty devastating because there's nobody like him in the Senate. So it was devastating for me because I knew I was losing my job, but it was also devastating because I, I, I couldn't really imagine working for anybody else in the Senate at that time, and so I knew it also meant that my time had come to an end, and I was sort of shocked, like it was, had basically been cut short. Um, and so I took a, just a few months off, like two or three months off. To, I thought that would clear my head and coll I could collect my thoughts, but I was actually very wrong. <laughs> it takes much longer than that. Um, I went uh, to work at the Center for American Progress um, for about, actually only about 18 months in the end, um, and I brought with me a lot of the issues that I had worked, <clears throat> excuse me, in Feingold's office and that I cared about. And it was, a good, it was a good platform for me to sort of step back and, you know, have a normal schedule and be in charge of my own um, focus, frankly, because, you know, when you're working for an active member of Congress, you have so, you're pulled in so many different directions. And then I was recruited to come over to Human Rights Watch by my former boss, now Assistant Secretary Tom Alanowski, which in the end, it's a great fit for me. And it, it's, it's been a great place and I've had a, I'm having a ton of fun. Uh, and so what is your, your job now? I mean, is it mostly lobbying uh, members of Congress and, and the administration on policies and issues that Human Rights Watch deems important? So I'm the Washington director and we have a, a relatively small Washington office um, but I'm doing a couple of things. I mean, I like to think of myself as sort of the strategic guide for the organization, <clears throat> excuse me, when it comes to the U.S. government. And there are many, many very smart, brilliant people within this organization that know a lot about the U.S. government. But I'm here as a resource to help sort of guide reports and sort of, you know, analysis and recommendations for what, quote unquote, what we should do. I'm here to amplify issues that we care about and priorities. I also take issues back. So if the U.S. government reaches out to me and says, hey, we, we want your opinion, you know, or can you come brief the, the atrocities prevention board or something. Sometimes it's me who does it and sometimes it's I pull in one of my researchers depending on sort of the level of detail. Um, but I like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a gateway and a strategic thinker and, and a link. And it's been, um, it's, it's been, I work with the, all branches of the executive branch and I work with Congress and I do a lot of work with the media and with think tanks um, and, you know, other operational organizations. And it's, it's so much fun. I mean, this is a very flat organization and, um, you know, our bread and butter is our research and it's incredible to watch the researchers do their work to see how much they know and then to be able to work with them um, to, to, to craft recommendations that make sense based on what I know about the U.S. government. Um, so maybe I'll ask you maybe to, to, uh, to end it with like kind of a broad question. So you've been in this line of work now for about 10 years. Um, what hu international human rights issue have you seen 
the most progress on? I mean, could you identify an issue where you saw like 10 years ago, you couldn't believe the amount of progress we've made 10 years since? It's a good question. I'd say it actually, I've probably been in it longer than 10 years since, I would say since like 98. So if I go all the way back. Fifth, let's say 15, 20 years. Yeah, uh, no, so in your career in human rights, has there been a specific issue? It takes a long time, right? I mean, that's yeah. why I, I, that's why, um, and I always try to remind everybody, you know, much of the work that I do, you're not going to see tomorrow. You might see a public statement about it, <laughs> but that doesn't always mean that much. It means someone's paying attention, but we got to make, we got to match the rhetoric with the policy change. So, you know, that's, it's a tough question uh, to answer. I think one of the things we've seen really remarkable change on, and this is a tough issue, I think, for the administration to grapple with uh, on the day-to-day, is accountability and impunity. There have been some incredible successes with the standing up of the International Criminal Court, efforts to build, <coughs> excuse me, um, hybrid courts to hold individuals accountable, whether at the head of state level, which is pretty remarkable, um, or lower down than that, um, efforts to build national courts, um, and to educate um, populations and citizenry about what, why accountability is so important and, and, and what it can do. Um, I feel like that's been a tremendous success for the human rights movement overall. In the U.S. context, it's tough to, to find one thing, but I think, I wouldn't call it a success, but I think watching the growth and understanding uh, and awareness of the Lord's Resistance Army and the U.S. response over the last, mm, I would say, six years, maybe, maybe more, has been incredible. The scope of the organ uh, of the Lord, the rebel group to inflict pain and harm and kill people has dramatically um, shrunk. Um, the capture most recently uh, of Angwin and transferring him to the Hague is incredible. Um, efforts at, at getting um, combatants and abductees out um, have had tremendous success. Um, although obviously a lot more is needed. Getting mobile. Um, phone communication in these previously almost unaccessible regions has been a huge component. So there's a lot more to do. But when I started working day in, day out on the LRA, I think it was two thousand and it was two thousand five, two thousand six, and I drafted a bill um with one of the guys who went on to found Resolve. Um and nobody was paying attention to it. It was such an uphill battle. And now it's a known issue. It's a known um, it's a known story. And in some cases, it's a really good example of U.S. commitment to civilian protection and a really good complement of civilian and, and military tools. Uh, well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. This was uh, uh, interesting and helpful and illuminating. So thank you. And I will absolutely continue to keep following your work. Good. Well, I'm happy to talk. Thanks for asking. Well, that was great. Thank you to Sarah. Thank you all for listening. And uh, just another shout out to you, dear listener. Thank you so much for supporting my work, for supporting this podcast, for being a part of this community, for recommending stories to me, which is so, so crucial to how I find people that I interview and how I decide what topics to cover. I do this for you. Uh, So please uh, do yourself a favor and let me know who you'd like me to interview and what topics you want me to cover. Again, thank you. And we'll see you next time. Bye.